oh, Elon Musk promised to double my Bitcoin, so I sent him all my Bitcoin. But it's not Elon Musk. I saw it on Twitter. People fall for dumb things, and that's not cryptocurrency's fault. That's just people fall for dumb things. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. The rapid increase in prices for some cryptocurrencies has many people wondering whether they should buy in or whether the market is ripe for regulation. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with Dave Jevons, a founder and the CEO of CypherTrace, which focuses on blockchain analysis and cryptocurrency intelligence. Let's listen. Dave, it's a uh, great pleasure and privilege to be able to have a conversation with you around cryptocurrency. And for the audience, uh, I might note um, that uh, I know of no one who really has the breadth of knowledge and experience around um, the cryptocurrencies that Dave has working constructively uh, with the private sector and with a broad range of regulators around the world. And uh, so I'll begin, Dave, uh, maybe you'll share with our audience just a little bit of your background and your experience. And I think you've been involved uh, directly in cryptocurrency since 2011, 2010, thereabouts. Yes, David, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And you're quite right. I got um, I got involved in Bitcoin late. So I started in 2011 in the uh, in the Bitcoin world and I bought my first Bitcoin at eleven dollars. Um, but I had been tracking it since the early days. And I, I was interested in crypto before Bitcoin. So there were quite a number of projects for about 10 years before Bitcoin, including Digicash, um, eGold, MasterCard had a project called uh, Mondex. So I met all of those people at various financial cryptography conferences. But when Bitcoin white paper came around and I saw it picking up and the model that it had, I knew it was I knew it was the one, and it seems to have proven so in recent times. As far as my background goes, I'm the CEO of a company called CypherTrace. We have been active in the cryptocurrency, security, risk management, anti-money laundering, and financial investigations markets for the last six years. We have clients all around the world in 37 countries and we work primarily with financial institutions, cryptocurrency companies themselves, regulators, uh, law enforcement and intelligence agencies everywhere. So it's been a really interesting run for the last five or six years since we started doing this at CypherTrace. Uh, one of the truly re remarkable stages of your journey is how you've been able to work constructively within private sector, with the investor community, with various financial institutions, as well as the regulators in understanding these markets and also understanding what the risks are and the actors. And maybe you could give us a little bit of an overview because, um, and I think what's important is, you, you know, you've been focused on digital currency, distributed ledgers, et cetera, for a long time. Just sort of, if you can give the a sense to the audience of how you're viewing the current marketplace, the evolution, the maturity, and then sort of what's coming down the road and what the main issues are and what you're focused on. Well, David, 
You know, we're recording this in May of 2021. Uh, it's obviously been a, a, a very interesting time over the last year. And we've seen increasing consumer adoption of virtual currencies, but also institutional interest is absolutely exploding. There are huge projects at major banks around the world to be able to participate in this market. Um, every major country has banks that are participating and building out products, solutions for either institutional investors or a combination of institutional and retail uh, clients. We've seen also a dramatic, I would say, change in the regulatory environment on a global basis, um, driven a lot by the United States and our regulators, um, who are primarily FinCEN as part of the Department of Treasury, but on a global scale being coordinated and to some extent driven by the Financial Action Task Force, which is a, a group of 190 regulators, and they have a virtual asset contact group that uh, is working to create recommendations for regulation on a global basis. So all of these things have combined, I think, to create an extremely viable market. It also helps drive adoption, which drives prices up. So that drives more excitement, but it's also safer and on the path to better regulations than ever before. I would also say one thing that is Kind of the Wild West right now would be what we call DeFi or decentralized finance, which takes cryptocurrencies and virtual assets to a whole other level where it's not just centralized trading on exchanges like we're used to with stocks, but creates much more distributed systems without centralized parties. So this is the new frontier. And let's take a step back uh, because there are a number of different digital currencies that are now offered, and, and you, you talked about the early days with uh, Mondex, etc. Can you give us a unified definition of what digital currency is, and um, maybe, how should I say, uh, dispel some of the myths about what it is not? Yeah, so I'd say that, you know, my definition of digital currencies um, in, encompasses virtual currencies, encompasses cryptocurrencies, and um, and also what we call stable coins, and even central bank issued digital currencies, which the world is experimenting with now. China being the um, the most prominent country who's experimenting with it. So that's how I think about digital currencies. But these are currencies where the person or entity that working with possesses uh, effectively the currency, if you will. So it's the private keys that control the currency. So rather than everything being stored as ledger notes in a, in a bank in a bank and, or paper notes, it's much more like carrying paper or bearer bonds where whoever controls the private keys can control the funds. So this um, creates a lot of interesting opportunities and new business models. But it also carries risks with it because, you know, if you lose your wallet and you're managing it yourself, you've lost all your money. But it also creates anonymity challenges 
which some people view as a, as a wonderful thing, and I think in some cases it is, but it can create a lot of challenges for the regulatory environment, for prevention of money laundering. That's how I think about digital currencies. It's this broad spectrum. But I would say today when you really look at it, um, it's really about what I would call cryptocurrencies, so the ones that people would be familiar with, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, others like that. And there's, there's hundreds of them. Well, there's thousands really, but um, there's, there's probably a hundred or so that gained a lot of traction. And it's really those and then what central banks are doing with their explorations into replacing paper money to, with a, a digital currency which uses the concepts of cryptocurrencies but is slightly more centralized. And of course, uh, one of the other than a digital currency that might be issued by a sovereign, uh, one of the attributes is that uh, these currencies are generally not related at all to fiat currency. One exception might be a stable coin. Well, that's right. So the, the, the regulatory agencies have started calling them over the last few months so-called stable coins, which I think drives much of the cryptocurrency community crazy, but um, it's probably more accurate description than stable coins. And what so-called stable coins are, they're cryptocurrencies where they're pegged to uh, a sovereign um, fiat currency. So for example, um, Tether is pegged to the US dollar. There are others that are pegged to baskets of of fiat currencies and the way that that is implemented is that the private companies that issue these so-called stable coins commit to having one-to-one fiat reserves in bank accounts that can be audited so for example if they have four billion of tether out they commit to having four billion usd in auditable bank accounts, and this is what creates the fiat to so-called stablecoin peg. Now, they can drift, as you can imagine, because maybe they issue a bit more or maybe some money is withdrawn for some other purposes. So they don't, they're never 100% pegged, but they generally are within 1% peg of the fiat that they claim to be. But these are not government-issued cryptocurrencies um, so you are at the at the mercy of the private companies that uh, issue these things and and are managing the the peg and Dave I know because you've been right in the middle of things for a number of years you've heard some of the criticisms and the questions uh, Charlie Munger co-hosting Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholders conference uh, had some pretty harsh words about it uh, other leaders of financial institutions, who are now, by the way, experimenting with and building platforms in response, uh, had similar harsh criticisms and questions about it. And are we not just back to the basic definition of what is money and what gets recognized in the marketplace and why? We're absolutely that fundamental philosophical issue of the whole space. Um, It was really designed to be non-sovereign money at the beginning, um, well, certainly Bitcoin and Ethereum and others were just definitely designed to be 
money that was detached from the fiat currency systems that was not under government control. And you do have all these arguments that, well, it's not backed by anything. And, well, I suppose you would say that, you know, there's an argument that U.S. currencies are backed by um, taxpayer revenues that are collected by the tax agencies. So you can say it's sort of backed by future revenues that are coming in. But I mean, other than that, it's it's to some extent a a consensual hallucination, the same as the dollar is and the euro and everything else. It's it's an agreement between people, businesses. So are cryptocurrencies. Um, They're obviously more volatile, um, but, you know, there's a currency trading market out there too. Currencies trade against each other all the time, every day. Virtual currencies are certainly much more speculative, but interestingly, they there are value to them. So some of them actually do things other than act as a means of speculation or as a way to transfer money across borders. There's or as a speculation vehicle. There are some that actually provide functional computation power and um, it's programmable money. So it's, 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 uh, you know, it really is the future of money. And if you were to sort of explain the rise, and I know you've done a lot of thinking and there's no one answer, and I guess only history will yield the actual analysis here. But if you were to explain the growing rise in digital cryptocurrencies, what are the factors behind? Increased understanding of what they are and what they can do. Increased availability, so making it easier for people to acquire them, buy and sell them. Increasing convertibility into um, or fungibility into fiat currencies in and out. So those are some of the big things. Um, a, a number of the drivers that are helping that are um, retail adoption. So you've got companies like Coinbase who went public uh, this year in 2021 that if you look at their revenues, you can see that that is largely a consumer-based business. They do have institutional business, but they have over 60 million customers, primarily in North America. So that helps. But you've also got these uh, millennial platforms like Robinhood, big trading platform that's been in the news this year. Um, They have cryptocurrency capabilities. I would say PayPal's move into cryptocurrencies at the end of 2020 also um, brought this capability to 100 million people, and they're looking to bring it out to 350 million people. So this is it. There's a there's the retail side that's been driving it. Um, price increase as a you know an investment or speculation is another factor. There's certainly these other currencies like Ethereum, which enable what we call DeFi, so decentralized finance, and that's growing like massively, which basically creates a technical infrastructure for providing things that only in the past big financial institutions could do, but now small teams can do it and individuals can access it and it can access products that only very wealthy or institutional clients could access in the past. So lending of assets um, getting getting interest on assets, which they call staking, um, 
providing liquidity into markets at a retail level as well as a as a institutional investor these are all the dramatic changes that have been happening over the last couple of years that are driving the uh the adoption the visibility the price and the success and i notice um you didn't even though we've discussed this there's a political underpinning to the attraction of a currency that is not linked to any sovereign or sovereign balance sheet or sovereign's politics uh or what I'll refer to as their geopolitical agenda certainly that was one of the biggest things getting this stuff kicked off was there was absolutely a uh political philosophical um underpinning that came out from the the 90s from the the cypherpunk movements um which looked at cryptography and and secure communications and as and anonymity and then eventually anonymous money as key ways for people to have freedom from government control so that definitely is one of the underpinnings and i would say another one is um self-sovereign money so um and the ability to manage my money over the internet without having to have a bank hold it because in the past you know you'd have to park your money at PayPal for example or you would use an online credit card which was tied to your bank account or you would send wire transfers and with cryptocurrencies you can manage that money on your phone and on your computer without relying on any institution whatsoever the data on your phone or your computer is the money and so having that ability to be completely outside of government systems certainly has been a a factor in it i would suggest at this point where we are in 2021 um while that's an important aspect to it it's not what's driving the mass adoption and price increase and i would suggest that that is um visible when you take a look at the success of a company like Coinbase or a Binance these are centralized exchanges where people have accounts and there's between those guys eToro Kraken a few others you've got hundreds of millions of people that have their funds in a in a private company so it's I think the the underpinnings are definitely what you said but there's uh I think the mass adoption right now is just driven more by market opportunity and visibility where people see opportunity where people see convenience where people see the ability to transfer assets in a different way divorced from a financial institution and they see an asset class increasing in value uh many authorities around the world uh see digital currencies very different they see these uh currencies as often instrumentalities of illicit activity uh manipulation uh the ability to facilitate uh criminal activity and obviously the oftentimes the proceeds held in anonymous forms of successful criminal activity Can you give us basically Dave because you spend so much time with regulators a uh, an overview of the current regulatory perspectives of digital currencies and also the current state of the regulatory landscape. Certainly David so the 
regulations are, are a patchwork around the world currently. Uh, you've got countries like the United States who have had uh, policies on virtual assets, virtual currencies, and um, they're fairly well developed. You've got countries like Singapore who are, I would say, even further down the regulatory path and have put together crypto-specific regulatory regimes and registrations and things like that that have to happen. Um, Switzerland is similar, interestingly, in reporting of transaction information and originator and beneficiary information. But then you have countries like um, South Africa who don't even classify uh, cryptocurrencies as currencies. They don't know what to do. Um, you'll have European countries who, again, have a real patchwork of of what, what they're doing. The UK was quite behind. They're starting to pick it up. Um, the Netherlands are a little more ahead. Uh, they don't allow Bitcoin ATMs, for example, but we don't have those controls anywhere else. So it really is um, a mix. And I think the Financial Action Task Force project with 190 regulators is, you know, they're really trying to put together that framework and push towards more homogenized regulations. But I'll say that there's some, you know, there's some interesting outliers in the regulatory world as well that lead to what we call regulatory arbitrage, where we'll see um, some countries that have weak regulations that are taken advantage of by what we call regulatory arbitrage. So you'll find uh, virtual asset companies that might have operations in the U.S. and Singapore and London, but they register themselves in the Seychelles. And in the Seychelles, there's effectively no enforcement as long as you don't provide services to residents of that country. And so you'll see large numbers of these cryptocurrency exchanges and other companies registering there have probably never ever even visited the country. They just have registration services and that allows them to skirt know your customer requirements, anti-money laundering requirements. So that is still happening quite a bit. We'll get back to our conversation in just a moment. You can get access to critical risk insights and analysis. Subscribe to Rain's core membership and get our daily risk book digest, weekly intelligence briefs on cyber, geopolitical, and financial crime, access to knowledge-sharing webinars and breaking alerts on important risk developments. Find out how Rain can power your business to success at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. When we talk about regulatory arbitrage, uh, what are the principal regulatory concerns? Money laundering, terrorism financing. Maybe you can just give people an overview of the different levers of regulatory concerns around cryptocurrencies. Yeah, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head, David. So um, anti-money laundering concerns, uh, countering terrorist financing, and then uh, tax collection to, would be the third one. So these are the areas that jurisdictions care about. But um, as I mentioned, you have jurisdictions that either have not categorized cryptocurrencies as money. So you can pretty much get away with anything. 
you've got jurisdictions that say, well, if you're not operating, if you're not servicing our our um, our citizens, then we're not going to do any enforcement. We don't really care. And so companies move around the world. They move their jurisdictions or they might even have um, jurisdiction in, in five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different countries. And then if one country tightens up their regulations, they say, okay, well, now we're domiciled in this other country. I mean, but there's they're not physically there. They're just registering as that's their where they are. I mean, there's a lot of uh, companies that are registered in the Caribbean that, you know, that's not where they really are, of course. And they're doing it for those reasons. So they want to make it easier to get customers. They also want to not spend the money on compliance. Um, you know, it's a lot cheaper to operate if you don't have to have a compliance officer and a whole bunch of people checking people's identity information and you don't have to file suspicious activity reports and you don't have to check transactions for whether it's criminal or not. It's a lot cheaper to operate and you attract a certain clientele that doesn't want to provide any of that information so you can grow a business in some of these jurisdictions because you don't check anyone's identity information, for example. Uh, Dave, the perspective that I think you're conveying here is, is as cryptocurrencies become a recognized asset class, whether you call it currency, whether you call it security or whatever, however it might be ultimately labeled, you're seeing the same type of, you use the term regulatory arbitrage, that goes on around banking and investing and broker-dealer activity. There are some jurisdictions that have strict compliance requirements about knowing customers, knowing beneficial owners, knowing where assets are going to and where they're coming from. We'll call it you know, transaction surveillance, the purpose of these various transactions, the reporting of suspicious activity, and the types of documentation that goes hand in hand with account opening. And so what you're suggesting here is that as this market evolves, the same requirements that have attended other asset classes and other forms of investing are now finding their way to cryptocurrency. And for the very reasons that, you know, authorities particularly post 9-11, were focused on bank activity and securities investment activity, etc. And for the same reason why some jurisdictions uh, are more attractive to people because they require less information and less reporting and uh, make it simply easier to open up accounts and move money to and from. Is that a fair perspective? Yes, that's a fair perspective, David. And can you talk to us as authorities are increasingly bringing cases involving criminal activity where digital or cryptocurrency was part and parcel, either part of the proceeds, instrumentalities, et cetera. Sort of, you know, how do you divide up the world and what are you hearing from the various regulators and how are you, let's say, looking out into the future to predict what regulations are going to look like? Well, 
financial investigations, for example, let's start there. The major countries' financial money centers have pretty well-educated and well-funded financial investigations teams on the financial crime side, on the traditional crime side that have you know, been trained in how to perform cryptocurrency investigations, how to create evidence. Um, to be honest, if all criminals used cryptocurrencies, the world would be a safer place because there's actually better tracing tools, like what companies that you know I work for, like CypherTrace provide, but others as well. Um, you have better visibility on blockchains than you do with cash. And honestly, you have it better than many times with banks, because if you move funds from bank to bank to bank, split it up between five banks and a money mule, um, and the money trail gets lost fairly quickly. Whereas in virtual assets, you actually have a much more technical ability to to trace the funds. So um, I think the you know, there is sometimes a, a misperception that, oh, this stuff is really bad and it's all anonymous. And the fact is, it isn't. And in many cases, it can be better than um, tracing traditional funds flows. So that's the first point I'd make on that. And we see that around the world is is law enforcement and financial crimes units and tax units are getting better educated and so that and having good tools that they can purchase. So that's good. Let me let me stop on that point because as a former prosecutor, and without dating myself too much, Dave, uh, the number of cases where cash was seized, the number of cases where I know that cash was used to facilitate, represented the proceeds of a crime, etc., uh, were countless. Uh, the hundred dollar bill, whether whether real or counterfeit, was oftentimes you know the tool of the trade and and was. Present. And of course, cash is not traceable. Cash has no distributed ledger to it. And cash, uh, of course, has no uh, ability to, how should I say, to sort of uh, attach itself to sort of a chain of custody, so to speak. And so um, if you could just take a moment just to square that, because uh, nobody at least that I've heard from has heard about banning cash uh, because it's used in criminal activity. But obviously it's a, it's a popular refrain when it comes to digital currency. Well, I think it's a, it's a refrain that we've heard for, you know, from people that aren't educated in it. So we've heard regulators and, and heads of treasury departments as recently as three months ago, claimed that you know forty percent or fifty percent of cryptocurrency is used for criminal activity, and it's just not true. That's things that they read from some journalist, or they made up, or they heard at a party, or oh, it must be true because it's anonymous or it's an opinion. I mean, those are alternate facts. Those aren't facts. The facts are that you can measure a lot of it. Do you have perfect information? Of course not. You don't know who every criminal is. But what you can do, what we do at CypherTrace is we measure all the dark markets out there. So this is where online drugs trafficking is happening. This is where online weapon sales is happening. We monitor financial crime markets. So these are where credit card dumps are being bought and sold, where identity dumps are being bought and sold, where stolen bank account information is bought and sold. You can monitor it. 
And if the primary vehicle for paying for that stuff are cryptocurrencies, now you know which addresses and transaction flows are related to criminal activity. Similarly with ransomware. You can get ransomware addresses and you can trace it and now you know how much ransomware it is, where it's bad, you can block it at the source, you can flag it as risky transactions, even if it moves between hands five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, fifty times. You can't do that in cash. So there's and you can measure the amount of criminal activity and it's it's I mean it's sure it's it's a it's a percent or two. I mean it depends on the number of transactions and the and the actual US dollar value corrected amount of transactions, but it's not 50%, 40%, 20%. It's not 10%. It's much lower than that. So that those are facts. So when people start talking about banning cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and things, it's based on opinion or it's based on lack of regulation and no controls. And what's happening, you know, what you see in India and other places is because they have poor currency controls, and have done outlandish things with their fiat currency over the last five years, people want to move money out. And so they're scared about that, about people moving into a system that, for example, is not hyperinflationary or where, you know, cash suddenly gets like not valued anymore. You can't you can't move money anymore. So th there's there's those concerns. But in more advanced economies, um, it's only people who don't understand the data. And I think that's one of the great things that we're doing is working with Financial Action Task Force, working with FinCEN in the United States, working with the IRS, working with Monetary Authority of Singapore, etc., with um, JFSA, the Japanese regulator. We provide them data and they ask us for data and they're asking the right questions. And that's across different virtual asset classes. And you can say, well, you know, here's what has been reported stolen. Here's what's fraudulent here's hacks here's ransomware here's dr drug dark marketplaces here's terrorism information you can actually track it and get information about it and so you don't hear those countries talking about banning crypto as ransomware attacks increase uh, invariably part of that headline is that people who are committing these attacks want to be paid in bitcoin so as opposed to i want you to drop you know, the bag of $100 bills under the bridge. And so uh, how much of those types of headline issues are driving um, what I refer to as the misperception about digital currency? Well, I think every technology, you know, has a good side and a bad side. And we all remember the, well, maybe we don't, but I mean, the fact is that the early days of VHS, and, and recording technologies were used for, you know, adult content, for pornography. And it eventually turned into, you know, a massive media uh, system. I mean, those those systems are still used for, for bad things. I mean, there's people who record video of doing highly illegal things with minors and other things. So it but it doesn't outweigh the value of, you know, being able to watch movies and TV and and news and things. So the same thing happens here. There will be abuses of the system. It's just a fact. And ransomware is one of them. But I will tell you, if you got rid of all crypto, you still won't get rid of ransomware because you can just demand a payment 
through a money mule system. You can say, I want a wire transfer to this money mule where I set up a, you know, I trick some small business or an old lady in Florida to basically accept funds that come into her bank account through a wire transfer. And then she sends it off to a, a bank outside of the country and she thinks she's processing uh, aid payments or church payments or what have you. I mean, you can still do it that way. And it was done that way before. It's easier to do with virtual currencies. Sure. On an international scale. Absolutely. But you can't take that one use case and say, well, that's, you know, that's a reason that it's terrible. Um, think about all the other zillions of use cases out there. Now, ransomware is also a particularly interesting one where I was reading an article today about a, a, a pipeline that was shut down allegedly because their computers were infected with ransomware. Well, you know, isn't the problem that your IT people don't have up-to-date antivirus, anti-malware that your firewalls may not be updated, that you don't have the the systems set up so that you can have backups and restores. I mean, in a, in a real ransomware thing, you it encrypts your data. You restore your computers if you have good backups and good IT staff and you're up and running. So you have to think about like what really causes ransomware. Most of it is really poorly implemented IT security, underfunded, also connecting systems together where everyone's you know files are all shared on all the computers together so if you infect one computer you infect them all so we have to look at both sides of it the payment side is part of it but that doesn't fix the problem because you can still if you wanted to do it as a nation state attack bitcoin wouldn't matter it has nothing to do with it it's about people wanting to make money and they can make money as i said through money mule accounts that happens all the time in fiat currency. Thanks for unpacking that for us. Could you give a sense uh, for people who either are invested or are about to invest in digital currencies, um, sort of your quick primer on the risks that they should be focused on and also where regulators might be going? Certainly. So if you're new to the space, my recommendation is you use a reputable company to purchase your assets, um, your currencies. So a, a big exchange in the country that you're domiciled in, one that's been around for a long time, where you can see if they've been hacked in the last three or four or five years, that um, you know regularly makes the news as being a main player that shows up on the top rankings, just as you... You know, you probably wouldn't invest if somebody knocked on your door and said, hey, I've got a great investment scheme. Give me $10,000. You should do your diligence on who the who the company you're going to use to get on board into crypto. That's the first thing. Also, do your work on the cryptocurrencies that you want to to buy. Are you doing it as an investment or are you doing it to move money around the world? They're two different things. But if you're doing it as an investment, then there's a great book, um, Crypto Assets, that really gives out an investment thesis on how you look at these these assets, the the teams behind them, the technology, etc. So you know, come up with your own valuation model, or you know, increasingly you can start to look at what other analysts are talking about. But like any other investable security, you know, do your work. 
So those are, those are my thoughts there. If you're going to manage your own crypto on your own computer or on your own hardware device, that's a whole other discussion about how to keep yourself safe and secure. But as with any type of investment or anything like that, only put in what you can afford to lose because these things can be volatile. On the regulatory side, I'd say, I mean, things are only getting better as far as safety for institutional investors and retail investors or owners of the, of of these products the i would say in my opinion what you'll see is um potentially the inclusion of these defi decentralized finance products as um falling under the same regulations that money service businesses banks exchanges have to fall under today which is um, I think they, you're, it's highly likely in the next year you'll start to see regulation about know your customer and anti-money laundering and sanctions controls on these DeFi products that should not impact investors. Um, but that to me is the that, that that's what I see in the regulatory side of things. What I would like to see is more adoption of these. Financial Action Task Force, these FATF um, recommendations around the world, but honestly, enforcement, because regulation without enforcement is nothing. It's just paper. And, you know, for example, at CypherTrace, we reviewed a few months ago, 800 cryptocurrency exchanges in 80 countries, and 56% of them had poor know your customer procedures. They either didn't ask you anything other than an email address or you could, you know, provide a minimal amount of fake information and get accounts and start trading. So I think we need enforcement of the regulations that we already have, not necessarily tons of new ones. Um, maybe the DeFi case will be the exception where you'll see new regulations. I know that as you look at the maturity of this market, you have felt that a proactive regulatory architecture could be very, very helpful in sustaining it. As people become either more interested or they remain invested uh, in this asset class, what is sort of the best way for regulators to understand what their job is and what is needed in this particular space? Well, David, I think that this breaks down into um, who is the regulator and what is the what are they regulating? So, for example. Bitcoin um, is not a security. So um, whereas uh, there's numerous other ones that are. So it depends on the issuance who issued it. So you have multiple regulators looking at the at the space. So you'll have Department of Treasury looking at things like funds transfer um, regulations. I'm sending cryptocurrency to somebody else, either inside the country or cross border. You'll have the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission of various countries, looking at um, the issuance of these as securities. And then you've got the CFTC looking at them as commodities. So um, there will be different views on how things are regulated. So you will see, for example, I would expect the SEC to um, start putting more focus on uh, one on the decentralized finance side, but also on market manipulation. And to your point earlier in our conversation, 
the things that we've seen in the securities markets and the banking and payments markets will become commonplace in the virtual asset and cryptocurrency marketplaces, such as market manipulation and enforcement of know your customer, um, the enforcement of suspicious activity reporting. Uh, there's a number of proposals on currency transaction reporting, which is done today in the payments industry. You know, if you send over $10,000, it gets reported. That's all coming to the space or is here already in, in many jurisdictions. So it's just going to get it's going to get safer. Um, but that said, you also have to look at um, you also have to look at, again, who you're dealing with. So we're seeing with these DeFi products, that's the fastest growth area for hacks and scams. So investors need to be very careful about those projects because many of them haven't existed for more than a few months. You Sometimes you don't even know who they're who built them and who's the beneficiary of it or if they are pulling a scam and disappearing with your money. So that's been the fastest area for scams. I'll also finish by saying that we at CypherTrace receive, I would say, in addition to you know, institutional uh, issues or, or opportunities for compliance products that we sell, we receive probably 70 complaints a week from individual consumers who've lost money. And I have to say that a lot of that's just pure stupidity or ignorance where people fall for romance scams. You know, I, he told me he was a, a, the pilot of a oil tanker and I needed to send him a hundred thousand dollars, but he'll come see me as soon as he gets back from the trip for the Suez canal. And it's, you know, that's not who it is. Or, Oh, Elon Musk promised to double my Bitcoin. So I sent him all my Bitcoin. But it's not Elon Musk. I saw it on Twitter. So, I mean, there's there's a ton of just people fall for dumb things. And that's not cryptocurrency's fault. That's just people fall for dumb things. Dave, you make a uh, an excellent point, uh, which we have discussed uh, broadly, which uh, the schemes are not new. The actors are not new. They just have different mediums. They have different ways to communicate. Um to scale, to work remotely, uh, to find the, uh, the barriers of uh, anonymity and um, impunity, and to, you know, basically take advantage. So, you know, look, the romance scams that are now occurring and where people are sending Bitcoin, the promises of future fortunes in exchange for advanced fees in Bitcoin, et cetera. Again, nothing new. They're just using Bitcoin as opposed to wiring money through various uh, financial institutions or uh, without dating myself, I still remember when some of these schemes, uh, they asked you to send a check or account information and they would handle the rest. I had one of those schemes five or six years ago, send me a check for $21,000. So that's still happening. uh, And one of the scams we see typically in virtual assets is the high yield investment product, or I call them hypes, H-Y-I-P's. These are these, you know, hey, we've got a Bitcoin mining rig or, oh, we're investors and we'll double your money and we'll pay you 10% per day and all that stuff. I started studying that in 2006, long before uh, Bitcoin was even around. So they were doing it back then, taking credit card payments, wire transfers, etc. I mean, that software is the same software from 2006 that they use today. 
They just changed the payment mechanism around. So to your point, the scams are the same. The people are the same. They're just using the ability of a bigger internet to access more people. And, and new portals and new mediums of exchange. Yep. So uh, first of all, David, thank you for really demystifying uh, a lot of aspects of the currency, the history of it, helping to maybe you know rethink the definition of what is money and why is it accepted and also getting a view of the regulatory landscape, the concerns, and what, what will be needed in the future to uh, sustain the, these very, very interesting platforms, regardless of whether you're an investor or not. Thank you again, and also thank you for being one of the honest brokers between the private and public sector. Thanks, David. Always a pleasure. Dave Jevons is a founder and the CEO of CypherTrace. He's a serial entrepreneur in crypto security and fintech. CypherTrace is part of the RAIN network, the hub of which is the democratization of information and expertise. Subscribe to RAIN's core membership and let us power your business to success. Learn more at RAINnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. network.com.